Welcome to The Marketer's Journey, a podcast that delivers real conversations and fresh perspectives from senior marketing executives who share the journey they've taken and the buyer journey they create. And now here's your host, Randy Frisch. Hey, marketers. Hey, business leaders. Welcome to The Marketer's Journey. Today's guest is fortunately, but also unfortunately on my podcast, CMO Peter Isaacson over at Demandbase. Now here's what's happened. This is being pulled up in our go live schedule of podcasts. Peter was only available this week because unfortunately their big event, the ABM Innovation Summit had to be canceled due to coronavirus. Now we all know the times that we're living in. If you're listening to this a few months forward or even a year forward, I think this is such a defining event that we will look back on it and learn a lot from it. And today we got to learn a lot about Peter. We got to learn about the challenges his team has had to go through in making the call just a couple of weeks before a huge event for over a thousand B2B marketers to say, you know what, this isn't the right time to pull people to travel to come to an event. How do you adapt in those moments? How do you react? I can tell you myself and my team, we've really had to rethink our marketing strategy, as I'm sure some of you who either are attending trade shows as attendees or sponsoring them as part of your go-to-market, you've had to adapt. Because for a lot of us, we think about investing in that as a channel so that we can drive people to content and educate them. So Peter and I start to unpack different ways that they've adjusted. And one of the thoughts that I've been sharing with people lately is to really think of these events as these content experiences, right? We bring people, we engage people into these events, but once they're there, we line up these amazing personalized content experiences for them. One track after another leads into the next. And Peter and I unpacked a little bit about how we can start to replicate that in the rest of our digital strategy. Beyond that, we hit on Peter's career, a real interesting one where he's leading a team over 20 people at Demandbase today in terms of the marketing team, came along the way from the agency side, moving in with a focus to become a CMO after 14 years at Adobe. Without further ado, my interesting conversation with Peter Isaacson. Hey, Peter, thanks for stopping by today. We are talking all about your career out of the gate here, and you are the CMO at a great company where I'm a customer called Demandbase. Tell us a little bit about how you got into that opportunity. Sure. Uh, So first of all, hey, Randy, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Yeah, so uh, Demandbase, I've been, uh, I'm kind of a long-termer there. I've been uh, at Demandbase now as CMO for six years. And the way I got into it, I was a CMO at a healthcare IT company called Castlight Health. And we were actually customers of, uh, of Demandbase. And by being a customer, I got to meet Chris Golick, the founder and CEO at the time of, uh, of Demandbase. And we just got along famously. And I started kind of digging into the technology a little bit more. And fell in love with that, fell in love with uh, the opportunity and the space. And again, just got along so, so well and connected at such a meaningful level with Chris that uh, when he uh, started talking to me about the CMO position, it was just a natural fit. So here's, here's the big question for, I guess, you and Chris. Did you lose Castlight Health as a customer as a result of grabbing, your, as, as a result of grabbing the skill? Castlight Health remains a customer to this day. Wow. Unbelievable. So there's two amazing metrics in there. One is you're you're basically 3Xing the average life of a CMO at six years. And the the, the Cactel TV on Castlight must be amazing. 
<laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I am. Uh, yeah, three X uh, the the longevity. I've uh, I I found out early on that uh, I had to get compromising pictures of Chris, and um, that would guarantee my my tenure. And you know, rest is rest is easy. <laughs> there you go. Well, well played. That's, that's right out of the CMO handbook. We'll, we'll figure out as we, as we take a step back, uh, we'll, we'll figure out how you learned that as a, as a strategy, but maybe just to give us some perspective, the size of demand base, you know, more specifically the marketing team that you're overseeing, can you help people understand what that looks like? Yeah, absolutely. So the size of the company, we're around 300, maybe a little bit more right now. Our marketing team, we've got, I think, uh, 26 people total on the marketing team. That does not include BDRs. BDRs actually uh, report into the sales function. Happy to go into that, uh, pros and cons of that, if you want at some point. It does include partners and alliances. So partners and alliances report into me. And then other than that, it's uh, the typical functions of product marketing, corporate communications, demand gen, digital marketing, field marketing, those teams all kind of rolling up into the, under, under the marketing team under me. So that's a, a pretty well-rounded marketing team, solid size. Maybe we can take a step back to, to understand how you got to your thesis on how to build a marketing team. And, and I assume that that would probably have either started at Adobe, you know, you spent you know, another long tenure at a company there, uh, almost 14 years, or maybe you even went further back. I, I think you came from the agency side. Yeah. So I think a couple of things that, uh, um, that I look for and, uh, you know, as you go through a transition, so I joined uh, Castlight Health, a company that I referred to earlier, I was CMO, but um, it was kind of laughable that I had the CMO title because I was the second marketer in. Uh, right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it was that classic, like, chief strategist and bottle washer kind of thing and built that team from two people up to 15 or 16 by the time I left. And at Demandbase, I think when I joined, we had a team of about 10. And as I said, now it's 25, 26 people. So the transition I think you go through as you're building out a team like that is early on, you're starting to look just for athletes, quite frankly. You're trying to find really smart people that can, that, that don't want to be pigeonholed into a specific discipline that can keep a lot of different plates spinning in the air and really enjoy that. And as you, you start to build out the team, you can get more specialized in terms of the types of people that you get. Not that you're always, not that you're, you stop looking for best athletes or folks that can handle a lot, but you might be getting someone that truly is a product marketer. That's been their career and discipline and focus. And that's what they like. And that's what they're good at, as opposed to someone that's more of a generalist. So that's one thing, kind of the transition that you make as you build out the team and kind of how you've got to think about the people that you're, you're bringing on. Second thing that I really believe in is giving people that are really good an opportunity to do different things. When I was at uh, uh, Adobe, um, the, the thing that got me to where I am now really was a couple of folks that really believed in me that were willing to throw me long passes and say, Peter's never done you know, worldwide field marketing. He's never managed a team above 30 people, but we're going to throw worldwide field marketing at him. 
and a team of about 180 people across 27 countries. And, I, you know, let's see how it goes. And I benefited from that mindset early on. And I try and give those types of opportunities to strong performers on my team as well. So I'm, I'm curious on that because, you know, we talked about long tenures that you've had both at Adobe and now at Demandbase. And, and it sounds like that was a big part probably of keeping you at, a, at Adobe for all that time was the opportunity to jump from one area of focus to another that maybe you, you weren't specialized in, but you were given that chance. You know, how do you, you know, how do you kind of attribute to find those opportunities for people and organizations? I think a lot of people, you know, I, I know even people on my team, they just, they, they think they can't jump out of being in a content role or a demand role or specifically product marketing versus taking that jump in company versus feeling a need to leave to do so. Yeah. So a, a couple of things on that, I think are really important. First of all, it sounds trite or obvious, but it's amazing how few people or how many people kind of ignore this fundamental aspect of career management, which is taking charge of your career yourself, like knowing where you want to go. Do you want to be a CEO someday? Do you want to be a CMO someday? Do you want to be going to sales? Do you want to be an entrepreneur? Right. And when you know where you want to go, it, the, the path to getting there becomes a little bit clearer, obviously. The other thing, so I, I, I very actively kind of pushed my career forward in that um, respect because I knew what I, I wanted to do and where when I When did you know that? Like, when did you know that you wanted to, to reach that CMO level? Was it in the agency side when you were selling from what I, I see on LinkedIn? Yeah, it was. Um, no, it wasn't on the agency side because, um, you know, I made the transition after um, two different agencies in New York over onto the client side, which is when I, I joined uh, Adobe as the um, head of brand marketing. It was really kind of after the first two or three years of working at Adobe in, in brand marketing that it, it I realized two things. One, I didn't want to be CEO of a technology company because I just had zero interest in managing engineers. <laughs> kind of probably a fatal flaw in, in my DNA or something. But uh, I, I can relate. It's okay. Yeah. And what I, what I recognized was I, I love marketing, right? Um, I really enjoy marketing. I think it's a fascinating discipline. I think there's a ton of room for growth. And I just decided that I didn't want to be CEO. I wanted to be CMO. So it was probably a couple of years into Adobe that, um, that I jumped into that. The second thing I was, I was going to say is you can't be afraid to make a lateral move both in, within a, a company or outside a company. I think too often people feel like it's a linear path that like you go from, you know, one, one role to a higher level role, to a higher level role, to a higher level role. And that's the only path towards success. And I was willing to make a couple of lateral moves at Adobe and other, and, and, and switching over at places because I saw that I was going to be getting valuable experience, which would be critical to getting to where I ultimately wanted to go, which was become CMO. That's interesting. And, you know, not to necessarily pigeonhole any, anyone who's classifies them more themselves more as a brand marketer. But, you know, when I look at your career on paper, at least I see that, that conscious effort to get more towards understanding the demand side 
you know, more towards that go-to-market strategy that's going to drive revenue, not to suggest that brand isn't essential to that. But what was that point that you realized perhaps that that you were going to, I mean, now, especially at, at demand base, which is so tied to account-based marketing and demand generation, when did you realize that to be that CMO you wanted to be, you needed to understand that, that ability to take someone from lead to revenue? You know what, I, I, again, it comes down to being fortunate enough to have some mentors and some people that thought enough of me to help not just guide my career, but give me an opportunity to do things that would help me get to where I, I wanted to go. And I told my, uh, my boss at the time, uh, Melissa Deardall, and um, the CEO at, uh, at Adobe at the time, Bruce Chisholm, that ultimately I wanted to be CMO of a, of a company. And Bruce Chisholm, I, I'll, I'll butcher his um, very heavy Brooklyn accent, but when he talked to me about this and had career kind of advice for him. He said, Peter, you got to get out of that ivory tower you're living in. <laughs> All of that brand stuff, it's 100,000 feet high. You got to get into the knife fight. <laughs> and he and Melissa gave me the opportunity to run uh, worldwide field marketing at, at Adobe, which meant reporting into the head of sales. You know, it was still marketing, but it was a completely different rhythm and kind of set of muscles in marketing. And it just connected me with the reality that the field faces every day, got me into the knife fight, got me into the quarterly revenue pressures and gave me an understanding of what that last 10 feet of marketing was all about. And, you know, as much as I intellectually kind of understood it, standing from afar when I was head of brand marketing, there's no replacement for just experiencing it. And it just gave me a huge step up towards the ultimately becoming CMO at a, at a company. Amazing. Well, I don't do any accents or any imitations. So on that note, we'll, we'll, we'll take a break just so I don't have to be put on the spot and then we'll come back. We'll talk a little bit transitioning from your career journey to how you see the buyer journey today, right here on the marketer's journey. Want to create high converting experiences for your demand strategies that accelerate pipeline and drive revenue? Look no further than our presenting sponsor, Uberflip. Named a leader in content experience by G2 and a leader in content activation by Forrester, Uberflip will help you accelerate every buyer journey by creating bingeable experiences that will allow your prospects to consume more content faster. Companies like Trimble, Wiley, and Stantec are using Uberflip to power their go-to-market strategies. And we created one just for you. Head to uberflip.com slash journey to see how Uberflip can help you leverage the power of personalized content experiences to drive demand. All right, Peter, now we're on to the buyer journey and we had a whole plan to talk about personalization. We'll probably get there, but you've had a week that you probably want to forget, but you'll probably learn from. For those listening, depending on when you're listening to this podcast, coronavirus has really just hit, uh, I, I'm going to say probably the, the worst of what's going on from a fear factor perspective. I hope not. No, no more is to come. And it's impacted a lot of different people, including Demand Base, which had an event planned in the coming weeks. What's, what's this meant for you? Yeah, well, it, uh, it, thank you for the nod to the week from hell, because it certainly has been a rough one for everyone involved. So we were, to use a, a sports analogy, kind of 
we were at probably the five yard line um, in preparing for the demand-based ABM innovation summit. We were going to have about 1100 B2B marketers joining us at Pier 27 in San Francisco on March 17th. We had, you know, so much work goes into it. And as you know, Randy, putting on events yourself like Conax and other things, by the time you get two weeks out, there's, there's still a lot of small stuff that you've got to take care of, but so much of the heavy lifting is, uh, is completed. So to make the, the decision, which we did about a week ago now, to cancel or postpone the event is just gut-wrenching on myself, on the team, on the company. And I got to say, like, kudos to the, the demand-based team, both marketing, but also other areas, because when we made the call, everyone got it, everyone understood, everyone thought it was the right decision, and then immediately rallied behind kind of two things. One, how do we execute a postponement and make sure all the people that need to know will know? And then what the hell do we do to fill the void, right? Like Absolutely. that was uh, an important event for demand base. So we kind of quickly got going on that. Yeah, I, again, my heart goes out to you. It goes out to pretty much every event planner out there right now. I, I pulled my own event planner aside last week and I said to her, I said, you know what? Like, I know this is terrible right now. I know you're hating every moment of your day, but you will look back on this and you will have learned from it. And it'll it'll set you up in a, in a whole other level of being prepared for the unexpected, the unknown. And that's definitely the, the territory that, that you had to find yourself in. So you know, as you hit on the second part, though, what do you do in this case, right? And, and I was actually, you know, interviewed by, by Business Insider last week, and they were asking me this very question. They're like, what do you do in this case? And I say, yeah, it's very tricky because as marketers, you know, we're planning our budgets not week to week, we're planning our budgets at least a quarter ahead, I hope, if not more. So the yeah. ability to say that we're going to be able to substitute these face-to-face -face interactions are so valuable in a complex buying cycle. It's tricky. What, how is, as you said, your team's rallied. What are some of the, the ideas that have maybe come in the last week for how you're going to replace those face-to-face -face interactions? Well, I guess, uh, first of all, we're in kind of an interesting uh, situation in that right now, what we're trying to do is work through a scenario where it's merely postponed, not canceled. So that's kind of an interesting dynamic that we're trying to manage through and we'll have kind of decisions in the next couple of weeks on what that looks like. But I think the most important thing is that we had all this content created and um what we want to make sure is that we don't lose all the effort and all of the great content that um, that has been developed for the for this effort. So, a couple of things on that. First of all, we had sixteen track sessions, um, twelve by um, customers and partners and and other B two B marketers, and another four uh, that were focused on, on demand based best practices, kind of new technology, how to use our technology, things like that. So the first thing we're, we're going to make sure that we do is package all that content up and um, provide it digitally. So we're taking all of the product content that we developed and making it available for on-demand kind of scenarios where we actually provide that, especially to our customers who are hungry for that information. Second part is 
setting up again, if we, we decide to cancel rather than postpone the other 12 presentations that our customers and partners and B2B marketers had already created the slides for, and we're going to record them. And then again, kind of get those out probably in some type of virtual AIS. And then the, the final thing is, you know, we, we had about a thousand people all registered for, uh, for March 17th. So we're going to take advantage of that and do a virtual keynote with some of the content that we were going to do on the morning of our event. So Gabe will speak, I'll speak, and we'll, uh, we'll have our head of products um, going through some of the new product announcements that we got. So long story short, the, what we're doing is just making sure that all of this great content that we've worked so hard on doesn't get created in vain and that uh, we push it out to our audience. So, I mean, again, I, I, everything's obviously changing on the fly for you day by day as, as you figure this out. I'm curious, you know, taking away from the actual what are you doing to some of your thoughts, because I've got some thoughts on this stuff too, which is, you know, as we look to, I guess, transition to a full out digital world for the short term, right? And, you know, we always talk about it's a digital world, but now we're, we are forced into a digital vacuum for the next yeah. I don't know how long, months, I hope at, at the most, but what are your thoughts on, on the ability to execute a virtual event? I mean, I've, I've personally struggled and I know we should both say they're great because we both do them all the time, but you know, <laughs> those listening, uh, you know, feel the pain that we do sometimes when we're trying to figure out how to execute that in-person event in a virtual sense. And I've gone through some of them where, you know, you walk through the booths online and, you know, to me, it's, it's a little silly and gimmicky. You know, there's other ones where in theory, you're hearing someone speak, but you're really just looking at their slides. You, you lose that element of the way they present, the way they, you know, they, they move their body to, to make a point. How do you think we, we kind of evolve that if we're heading to such a digital world? Yeah, I mean, uh, certainly um, heavy dose of digital is a big part of our plan. And uh, without being a, a shill, I mean, uh, the account-based advertising, the website personalization, the other things that DemandBase does around account-based marketing, we're actually going to be pushing that, uh, those uh, channels and tactics even harder than we do normally. But I, I mean, in terms of the virtual kind of virtual webinars and stuff. We've done some of that stuff too, where you set up kind of a semi-virtual experience and people do walk through and it's trying to recreate that. I don't think that that does a ton for the actual experience. And I think it's difficult to, you know, it, it doesn't succeed in the difficult task of replacing the face-to-face -face and kind of emotional impact of being at a conference and seeing a presentation live. I think it comes down to, you know, as much as possible, if you can um, have strong video quality, you know, Zoom is fine, but quite frankly, if you can actually have a little bit better production value, that's even better. So for our virtual keynote that we're going to be delivering on the 17th, we're going to set it up and record it so that it's a kind of a, um, a newsroom where we're sitting at the table and we're going to have multiple cameras and we're just going to improve the experience through improving the production values of the content that we're producing. And then it just becomes incumbent on the presenters to be even more outgoing, even more energizing, 
and to really do whatever they possibly can through humor or insights or analogies or better storytelling to communicate in a more effective way because keeping attention for a 50 minute presentation is a challenge when you're live in the room sometimes. Um, if you're kind of staring at a screen, it's even more incumbent on that presenter to, to bring their A game. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's interesting as you were describing that, I'm, I'm sitting here trying to envision the right type of experience and my mind goes to a TEDx talk, right? When we watch yeah. a TEDx talk, it isn't that slide that's front and center. It's the speaker, but they do yeah. a great job from a production value perspective, as you said, to make sure that you get a feel of that person. The slide is still front and center when need be. The audience's reaction, although it's you know smaller than it probably looks, you know, brings everything to life in a way where you you feel connected. Now, there's also special elements in a TEDx talk, like like the length versus a 50 minute talk. To your point, but it's there's definitely something I think we can learn there, and and it may be an area that the marketers are are forced to move into. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Interesting. So, you know, last question I've got for you, and and then we'll we'll start to wrap up here, but. You, you also alluded to going heavier on these other channels. You know, some of the channels I know demand-based can, can help power like digital ads and personalized ads. How do you think about, you know, the personalization in that ad and where that ad ultimately leads you towards? Yeah. So I mean, that's something we think, you know, pretty hard about because the just personalization is such a powerful kind of part of an experience for B2B marketers and for the buyers and influencers that you're trying to reach. So we do everything we can to connect that experience from the ads that they're seeing and how we personalize that by, you know, where they're at in the buying cycle or what type of company they are and uh, what size of company and things like that. But carrying that through to the content experience on where they land to personalize that for that company. So obviously we take an account centric kind of approach to everything that we do, but making sure that that company and that person at that company is getting a truly personalized experience from their advertising into their website experience and all the way even into their um, their sales engagement is a really important part of how we try and string together the the buyer journey and uh, and personalize it along the way. Yeah, absolutely. As as we've been talking about events and and that shift over the last couple of weeks, I've been telling people that everything you just described is is more or less an event taken to a digital mindset, right? You know, we go to these events and we have a track of content that feels personalized to the to the type of vertical we're in or the type of persona we're in. And sometimes we are even invited to dinners that are built for our account. You know, the, the mindset that we have to take in this digital only world right now perhaps is to replicate that with personalization along the way. So I couldn't agree more. And you know, there's some pretty cool things that uh, Demandbase and Uberflip are doing together to make that a reality that uh, we'll make sure to link to for people. And I think that's a really important uh, aspect of it. Kind of, you know, it's, no, no single vendor does it all. So kind of connecting between, you know, vendors in your tech stack, like, like demand base and Uberflip does, I think is a really important part of making that a reality. Because again, 
we only do part of it, right? You guys do part of it. You know, making that connection and integrating the experience is just key. The final thing I'd say, Randy, is um, I think this isn't so much event specific, but one of the things that, well, actually a presentation that I gave at B2B MX where I saw you last was just on how to grow during a downturn. And it really wasn't even created around coronavirus. It was all the economic indicators were actually starting to point downward before coronavirus. GDP growth was slowing in the United States. Capital expenditures were slowing down. Business confidence was declining. And in that environment, marketing budgets always come under pressure. Absolutely. It's just kind of the immutable law of the universe. And I think that's going to be one of the, especially with coronavirus coming in, I think that's going to be one of the challenges that, that B2B marketers are facing, which is how do I, even under pressure with my marketing budget, how do I still achieve those pipeline goals? How do I still accomplish the things that I need to accomplish from a corporate perspective, despite the, the harsh realities of budget decline? So, Absolutely. And sadly, maybe rightfully, but sadly, marketing is often seen as at the most variable cost out there versus some of our other business costs. So not, not a surprise that that's, that's likely to happen. Peter, this has been great. What we're going to do, we're going to take a short break. We're going to keep you around for some bonus coverage. We've gotten to know about your career, your buyer journey. want to know how you make time to travel when travel is allowed. Uh, right back here on The Marketer's Journey. All right, Peter, we've unpacked your career, the buyer journey amid these crazy times we're in. When, as we said before the break, there are not travel bans or travel concerns, how do you make time to break for yourself? How do you make time to break for your family amid being a CMO and that path towards getting there? Sure. So um, I have two kind of inviolable principles when it comes to vacations and uh, my family. And for my career, I've been pretty steadfast at protecting them no matter what. One is that each summer we take a two-week vacation. And that's almost un-American of me. Americans like to, you know, take a long weekend and say, you know, <laughs> that's, uh, that's all you need to recharge the batteries. But I think when it, when it, when it comes to real terms, you know, if I take a week off, it takes me till Wednesday to kind of forget about work. And then by Thursday morning, I'm uh, starting to think about everything that I'm going to be having to do when I get back. So having two weeks off is a really important break for me. And I'm still attached. I always bring my computer. I always, you know, have that kind of stuff. So I'm always connected. But having the two weeks off is a really important thing for me each, uh, each summer. Second thing that I uh, is absolutely critical for me and my wife is we made the decision early on that you know despite the fact that we were both had you know careers that we were growing and were important to us we were always going to be home for dinner so no matter what uh, for our family we've got two kids they're uh, a little bit older now but we always made sure that we had dinner together so That's that great. no matter how crazy the day got we just. We were there to have dinner, break bread, talk about the day. You know what? Even if it meant kind of putting the kids down and jumping back on the computer for the next two or three hours, that was worth it to both of us. So those are two things that uh, that I've done pretty religiously. That's great advice. And I like that because it creates 
balance for something to look forward to, but also, you know, you're, you're not looking too long given that it's a daily routine. Tons that we learned from you today, Peter. I, re- I can't thank you enough for breaking, breaking time right now. I'm, I'm sorry for the week you've had. I hope next week is going to be better. Until then, we've, we've really enjoyed learning about your career, though. And this is really just you know, one moment in that, that's, uh, that that will help define an, an amazing legacy. We've had a lot of other great guests. So if you're tuning in for the first time, please jump onto Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts and listen to some of their great marketing leaders that we've gotten to speak to here on The Marketer's Journey. Until next time, thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to The Marketer's Journey podcast. Big thanks to our sponsors at Uberflip, who help you fuel demand generation with content for an accelerated buyer journey. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify at uberflip.com slash podcast or anywhere you listen to podcasts.